Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. Republican lawmakers are proposing sweeping election bills. We'll tell you what impact they'd have on voters. Plus, some candidates on the ballot in 2022 are raking in massive amounts of campaign cash. We have the latest finance reports. And another Democratic leader at the state capitol announces she won't seek re-election. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for February 4th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., let's start off with uh, the GOP sweeping election bills that were, some of them were released late last week on Friday, and then additionals were on Monday and the rest of this week. And a lot of them, we know, um, if they make it to Governor Evers' desk, he is likely to veto them. But like we've talked on this uh, show before, Republicans are just trying to really fire up their base, show that they want to do something when it comes with elections. Now, a lot of these bills uh, reflect uh, findings from the nonpartisan legislative audit bureau that found no evidence of widespread voter fraud, but made dozens of recommendations to improve elections. Some of these are very similar to ones that we saw passed last spring. But let me just kind of give a quick rundown for our audience of what they would do. One would target uh, who can claim indefinitely confined status that would require them to show proof of a photo ID. There's new rules for uh, special voting deputies that go into nursing homes. That was a big concern over Republicans in the 2020 uh, presidential election. Another proposal would give the Joint Finance Committee power to eliminate the Wisconsin Elections Commission staff and withhold their funding. And then one that is not an actual bill would amend the state constitution to ban government officials from accepting private grants to fund elections. That, of course, we know has been a big issue in Michael Gableman's election investigation. And another one would require watermarks on absentee ballots. And Republicans are, in sense, saying that this was increased transparency, restore t- trust in the electoral process. But like we said, if Evers gets them, he is going to veto them. So we're going to have some he- public hearings on these bills next week. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the question here, Jr., is do we know if these bills reflect any of Gableman's findings or are Republicans just trying to get out ahead of it? Well, it's one of my three questions about the bills. Uh, number one is what's real? So, yes, they're going to pass these bills. Senator Governor Evers, uh, he's going to veto them. If they were in charge, if, if in January of 23 they have the full keys of the, the car in the Capitol, what bills would they do? For example, the one about giving joint finance of power to punish it's four agencies you could take away money fifty thousand bucks a day i think it is if you're failing to comply election laws and take away staff like is that really something they want to do or is that trying to appease a constituent called and said hey if these agencies don't do what you want them to do how are you going to hold them accountable well here's an idea like right they're just trying to get these things done before the session is over so that's one question um where's the gable stuff remember robin voss at one point wanted that done by october then it kept getting pushed back. The last thing he said was he wanted a recommendation by the end of February, right, to have legislative recommendations. Where is the report? We don't have a report yet, so are there more bills coming? Are there Gablin specialties that we're going to see? I don't know where that is at. And also part of this whole discussion, too, kind of where are the assembly and on the same, are they on the same page with everything? Right. There's a lot of different proposals doing the same thing slightly differently, like indefinitely confined voters. Drop boxes. They're not in there. Mm-hmm. We all know that Kathy Bernier was working on a bill that was kind of like 
a whole host of changes with a provision on drop boxes. That bill draft was leaked to Gateway Pundit, this conservative outlet. Um, a lot of pushback on Republicans, Donald Trump saying they're the rhinos in Wisconsin trying to work on drop boxes. Robin Voss, I don't support drop box expansion. Okay, well, somebody's working on it before, right? So it was talked about. So what happens with those going forward? Obviously, we have some stuff with uh, Joint Committee for Review of Administrative Rules, the Elections Commission, but that's not in the package. And that is an example of is there trust between the two houses right now on election stuff because, again, they were working on it. It had been discussed. Things blown up in public by this conservative outlet, Tron Trump, all of a sudden it goes away. So are they the same page what they want to do, these election bills? And speaking of Senator Bernier, um, I also talked to her this week about these bills and saying, hey, what happened? Uh, what happened with the ballot drop boxes that would have allowed some municipalities with at least 70,000 residents mm-hmm. to have a limited number of ballot drop boxes? She basically admitted that there was some influence. And she basically said, yeah, I mean, once Trump got involved, I was asked to remove that bill out of this package. She didn't really tell me who asked her to do that. Um, but I, let's just take a listen from her kind of defending these bills and her, her saying that we should still pass these regardless if the governor is going to veto them. I am not the executive branch. I am not the judicial branch. I am the legislative branch. And that's all I'm doing is providing legislation for clear direction for our election administrators. And I urge Republicans and Democrats to um, hop on board. Um, These are good bills, um, and they're good uh, administrative um, direction for the Wisconsin Election Commission, which I think they need. It is to make sure that we craft and draft good legislation um, that can be picked up when we get a governor who will sign them, um, so they've been well thought out, they've been vetted, they've, um, they follow along um, the Legislative Audit Bureau's recommendations, uh, a few of them similar to the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, also had m- many of the similar suggestions um, for better transparency in election administration. Now, of course, Benier worked a long time as the Chippewa County clerk, so she feels like she has good input in these bills, that they're not really crazy, outrageous, mm-hmm. I guess you can say, of what some of the Democrats say. And speaking of Democrats, uh, Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer had a statement criticizing the GOP bills that she said is yet another blatant attempt to impose a political agenda and partisan control over our nonpartisan election process. Many of these proposals have already been rejected and not a single one of them makes it easier for voters to participate in our democracy. So this also comes as Democrats are asking the Wisconsin Elections Commission to remove GOP Commissioner Bob Bob Spindell for his involvement in sending fake elector votes, or trying to at least, certify Donald Trump the winner mm-hmm. uh, in Wisconsin. There was there was a lot of news that happened also last week that I think we should recap too, because one of those people that were involved was the former GOP chair of the Republican Party of Wisconsin, Andrew Hitt, who is now being investigated and was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. So a lot of news headlines mm-hmm. about those uh, electoral votes and more people wanting to hold uh, them accountable for their actions. So remember the electors thing. So the official electors met December 14th in the governor's conference room. The Republican electors met uh, also in the Capitol in another room that was reserved by then Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald of the state Senate, now a congressman. Um, they argued that was all to keep their legal options open. Remember, this is all transpiring after the state Supreme Court had heard the lawsuit from Trump 
after federal judges had heard the lawsuit, they thought there was an avenue to keep this alive to try and reverse the results. They said that's why they did it. There is a complaint for the Elections Commission accusing them of fraud. Um, the 14 Democrats asked uh, Devin Lemon, the majority leader, to remove Spindell because it says appointment. He reappointed him in 2001, or 21, sorry. Uh, Lemon Hughes basically would go jump in a lake. Not going to do that. Bob Spindell is like this cult figure among conservatives right now for his participation in election commission meetings, which um, are entertaining if you like watching <laughs> people Eight, nine be hours dis sometimes. dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, so there's that going on. And there's this really this kind of like question of like what's the bottom of this effort on the false electors? Is there something illegal there? I don't know. Not a lawyer. Um, but they're being accused of fraud because you sign documents saying that these are the electors of Wisconsin. You send it to the federal government saying these are the electors. They're arguing this is just a, a legal strategy, but I don't know if there's going to be a legal ramification for the people who sign those things. We're also finding out Jim Troopas, who was the lawyer for Donald Trump in his recounts and um, was clued in through a memo that New York Times reported on about the strategy of the false electors, so there are all kinds of layers of that onion right now that are going to play out from a, a House committee in Washington, D.C. And whether we'll even get any results from the January 6th committee before the next uh, election, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll have to see. Uh, also this week, we have uh, quite a lot of updates from the last time we taped the show about the ballot drop box saga. So we kind of have a timeline to where we left off, I guess, after taping this show on Friday, because what happened uh, last week was the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled to keep drop boxes in place for the February 15th spring primary election, and now we'll decide the future of drop boxes for future elections. And then on that same day, the Wisconsin Elections Commission met and split on three, three on party lines on rules surrounding ballot drop boxes. Then we got the pushback from the co-chair of the Administrative Rules Committee, Republican Senator Steve Noss, basically threatening legal action if WEC does not issue a rule regarding these drop boxes. And he says if they're not going to meet my demands by February 9th, which we know they're probably going to meet, no. not going to meet that deadline, uh, he's basically saying, well, I'm going to hold you accountable and maybe lawsuits will be flying. So it requires a majority vote in the commission to do anything. That requires four votes. They did not get there during the conversation on Friday. With no directive from the commission, the agency can't promulgate the emergency rule by the deadline that NAS wants. Even if it had, it was a pretty good bet that there would have been a vote to suspend that guidance. Now, on Monday, the uh, Elections Commission voted to move forward with guidance as a rule on filling in missing or incorrect information on absentee ballot envelope. Why is that important? because they had begun that process of reviewing all things they did in 2020 and 16 from the audit, right? Um, they'd begun this rule process. They said, okay, we're going to go ahead and meet your emergency rule request with this guidance, turning it into a rule. Even after that, NAS says, uh, I don't like your guidance. It's, you're not going to be done by my deadline. There's going to be action about this. So the path is clear that NAS is going, and the Joint Committee for Review Rules is going to suspend whatever the commission wants in terms of filling in misinformation on absentee ballot envelopes. There's going to be an action about drop boxes. Oh, by the way, the Supreme Court's got this case in front of it. The court was asked this week, okay, you said you could have them for the February 15th primary. We should think you should have them in place for the February or April 3rd or 5th uh, yep. spring election. Sorry, I can't remember the date. But this should be in place for that election as well because it's so close to that election. You should change the rules ahead of time. So that request is pending. The real show is what's in place for November, right? Um, no offense to people running the spring ballot. There's not going to be nearly the turnout that there will be for November. 
There are no statewide races on the spring ballot. It's all about what's happening in November, what the rules are against the backdrop of how are we going to vote in November. Right. There were 3.3 million votes cast in the presidential election in 2020. Two million were by absentee ballot. I don't know if we're going to stay at like 60% absentee ballots going forward or if we go back to our normal behavior of voting in person. If we're voting in person for the most part, it's not going to be as big of a deal. But if we remain in a pandemic where people are kind of nervous about being in public in groups, this could be a very big impact in the election. And a lot of people like the comfort of voting mm-hmm. in their own home. They ha- maybe have the availability to do it, put in the mail. Maybe it doesn't work with their work schedule. It's become so popular now throughout the pandemic. More people just still might stick with it, the status quo, or go in person. Um, That's the I, question. Has it changed our behavior? Has, right. has it changed how we vote permanently or temporarily? And then we also have other people who are afraid now to vote absentee because of the conspiracy theories of mm-hmm. ballot uh, stuffing these ballot drop boxes and other things that maybe you're hearing from the messaging from President Trump that have not been claimed true at all. Uh, so it, it will be interesting. Before we hop on to the next topic, we kind of mentioned about uh, WEC's meeting on Friday, them having this debate. We do just have a little bit of, of uh, two commissioners going at it um, and, and how they felt about not actually propagating a rule that day. I actually agree with the with the circuit court uh, decision by deciding that there should only be drop boxes at the clerk's office supervised by the clerk and staffed by the clerk. That's great. And we were in a position of having to try to enforce and administer a very unclear law at a time when uh, people were frankly scared during the pandemic. That nervousness of the pandemic is largely over. I think everybody's figured out how to mail letters, mail ballots, how to go to the store, and so on. Now that there has been some guidance, I, I liked what, what was written. Uh, uh, Mr. Wateka uh, wrote that at the very least, our guidance is under a cloud at this point. I think it's more than under a cloud. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it should just be retracted. And so I hope that you'll all support that motion. I think that's a terrible idea. I have no interest in withdrawing our guidance on drop boxes. I think drop boxes are safe, effective, and an important asset to our election community. I think the idea that the the drop boxes that were installed are contrary to law is, is completely incorrect, and I disagree with the very limited analysis of the circuit court. I think our guidance is really helpful. It says, if you have drop boxes, here are all the different ways to secure them. Here's what we recommend. Here's what we think you should be doing in accordance with best practices. And I think that kind of guidance is exactly the kind of guidance we should be giving. We're going to now dive into some campaign uh, Mm -hmm. fundraising numbers that we got this week from the U.S. Senate race. And we're going to touch on uh, some other districts later in the show or other people on the ballot, I should say, uh, in our stock picks. But let's just bring up the slide here. I mean, it's no surprise Money just keeps getting bigger <laughs> in these elections. You got Ron Johnson with a uh, cash on hand there, and then Alex Lazary, Mandela Barnes, Sarah Godlewski. So, you know, one of the headlines out of all these uh, all these fundraising numbers that we collected this week, Jr. is Mandela does stand out specifically with individual donations, but he doesn't really have enough right now to start getting in the campaign ads like mm-hmm. we're seeing Alex Lazary, who got a really mm-hmm. good head start on that uh, last year. He started doing uh, those ads. So we're trying to put. In the the Wisconsin race in perspective, right? So Ron Johnson raised $711,000 in the fourth quarter. Now, those people tell you he wasn't actively raising money, you know, he wasn't a candidate, but we all know he was gearing up in case. Uh, his fundraising has paled in comparison badly to other top targeted senators. 
Uh, Raphael Warnock in uh, Georgia raising nine million plus last quarter. Yeah, Mark wow. Kelly nine million plus. If you look at the five centers most targeted, those two plus Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire and Castro out in Nevada, the closest for Johnson is probably Hassan, who's like around three million plus raised last quarter. That tells you the difference between where um, Johnson is and like the other targets, right? So this quarter is key for him. Can he ramp it up? How much is he going to raise now? That said, the NRSC, National Republican Groups, they're going to spend money for Ron Johnson. As opposed in 2016, where he was kind of abandoned by groups in the fall because they thought he was dead in the water and he did it on his own, they're geared up to fight for Ron Johnson this time. The money will be there. The thing is, though, when you don't have the money in your own campaign coffers and relying on somebody else, you control the message less than you want to. Mm -hmm. Ron Johnson has unique views on how to campaign and how to do things. He wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. The NRSC might not want to talk about what Ron Johnson wants to talk about. It might have a different message for the campaign. So there's that. In the Democratic field, Mandela is by far the best at raising small dog donations. And why are those important? Because that's the fundraising people you get in your email like every third day hey, saying, Hey, five bucks, ten bucks, we need you. <laughs> those folks are a cash register that you can hit up time and time again, and it adds up after a while. I mean, he raised more than four hundred grand out of the 1.2 just from anonymized donations. So that's a pretty good, healthy clip. The thing, though, is... While Lazary and Galuski are trailing behind him, and, you know, Tom Nelson, too, in terms of uh, raising for individuals, Lazary and Galuski can write checks. And if you look at the cash on hand, they're all, like, around the same mark, right? Lazary's been on TV. He can write a check to go back on TV again. Galuski, we think, is going to go up on TV sometime before too long. Mandela doesn't have personal resources to write that check, um, but he doesn't have enough money to, like, do a big, giant TV buy. Now... He added 520 grand in January, his campaign said. So again, raising a healthy clip. But I'm watching those. How can you spend that money? You know, right? You know, how can you get up in the air? He's the front runner in part because he's better known. He's been at 40 percent the entire time, right? Just kind of like right, coasting. Uh, Tony Evers in the primary for governor in 2018 hit a spot and nobody took him down. Will Lazary or Galuski throw a punch? Will they go after him? Will they go negative in their ads or when they're backers? That's a big question. Um, you risk, if you go negative, alienating part of the Democratic base. But if you don't, how do you catch them? The other challenge was, too, is the perception is that Mandel's going to win the nomination, right? If you're trying to get people to give you money, how do you get donations when your people think, well, you're not going to win anyway? Right, yeah. So there's a, this vicious cycle of you, you don't seem like you're going to win because he's raising more money from others. You can't get money from others to change the perception because they think <laughs> they buy the perception. That's a challenge. Um, so I'm watching going forward this quarter. What does Ron Johnson do? Does Mandela ramp up the machine and really turn this thing into a big fundraising operation? Because much like Johnson, I looked at like the other four states where they're targeted races. Mandela's kind of in the middle of the pack. You know, he doesn't really stand out. Now, Herschel Walker in Georgia, uh, he is onto a different candidate all himself, right? A former NFL running back. Um, Donald Trump's blessed him. He got $5 million in the first, fourth quarter. Uh, there's a guy out in Nevada who's given himself $8 bucks so far, $3 million in the fourth quarter, so it's a different story. Everybody else, they're like, you know, around where Mandela is. So he's raising good money. It's just not like blowing out of the water money. And that's maybe what his challenge is. Can he blow you out of the water in the coming months? And uh, whether Ron Johnson is going to maybe put his own money into this race, that's still a lingering question. He did do that in 2016. So that's and, mm. and, and whether or not these Democrats, you're right. I mean, is someone going to throw a punch? We see what's going on in the GOP primary race for governor with Clayfish mm -hmm. and Nicholson kind of now hitting each other, uh, trying to make well, more headlines. going to throw a couple punches. Oh, for sure. Oh, he already <laughs> has. Um, but is that maybe what we're going to mm -hmm. see? We, we don't know because 
Democrats tr tend not to do that. Sometimes they make these pledges, right? We've seen in the past mm -hmm. that we're not going to get nasty. But Nobody went after in, Tony Evers right. in 2018 yeah. and it allowed him to kind of ride that perception ride that of wave. Mm -hmm. he's just there. Now, if John's what's worth, you said on WISN's up front, he's not going to put money in. We'll see, you know. Right. We'll see when push comes to shove. But the money's going to flow. There's going to be plenty of resources in Wisconsin come fall. I guarantee you'll be a lot of TV ads. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's hit another topic real quick. Uh, Republicans this week. Also, it, it, I will want to make it clear, there's not actual bills yet, but there was a memo sent by Senator Alberta Darling kind of signaling some bills dealing with K-12 through education, basically that would overhaul uh, MPS and the system in general because what's the biggest and largest school district in Wisconsin? Milwaukee Public Schools. So they would basically dissolve MPS by July of 2024 and open anywhere from four to eight smaller schools. Another bill would seek to expand private school vouchers to every student regardless of a family's income. Now, like I said, we haven't seen the co-sponsor bills yet, but this is not a new concept. Republicans mm -hmm. have tried to overhaul and dissolve MPS and do a similar thing back in 2009, I want to say. Leah Vukmir was uh, sponsoring a legislation that's similar Jim, to that. Jim Doyle tried to Jim, do a takeover of MPS and didn't go anywhere because locals wouldn't buy into it. Scott exactly. Walker had an idea. Opportunity schools, locals didn't buy into it. They didn't go anywhere. It's, it's so it was slammed by the Milwaukee School Board president that I talked to, Bob Peterson, saying it's going to be a recipe for chaos because if you get rid of MPS, that also not only gets rid of an education system, but, you know, the meals that these families rely on. Mm -hmm. uh, Alberta Dar Darlene, her response was basically saying, hey, this is... This is in response to numerous concerns that we're hearing from parents as and children are seen during the COVID-19 pandemic and what she says, quote, failed school leadership by eliminating education opportunities in our schools. So I, I, we, we know where these bills are basically mm -hmm. doomed because Governor Evers, former state superintendent of schools, huge, huge fan, I guess, and cheerleader for public school systems in Wisconsin. What always happens about now in a legislative session is the queuing up the next session's bills. Right. So this is more about laying a foundation for next session if there's a Republican governor, which is the big if, right? If it's Governor Evers again, this is not going anywhere. If there's Governor Clayfish or Nicholson or whomever, there's an opportunity. You'll also hear Republicans talk about funding kids, not uh, buildings. They want to move more to a model of universal school choice. Some do, not everybody, but some want a more universal school choice model where you give each kid basically a voucher and say, spend it where you want to. And the whole idea behind uh, school choice in Milwaukee back in the 90s was it would force MPS to compete for kids. It would force MPS to change. That argument went away a long time ago, mm -hmm. did not have that impact. Now it's about giving kids opportunities to get away from MPS. Well, the challenge in Milwaukee is I don't care how much money you put into the school system, you aren't going to fundamentally change the poverty that is in the district. That is something that's going to be a challenge. I don't care where these kids go to school. Just a fact of life. If you have poverty, you have challenges when it comes to education. Mm -hmm. So how do you fix that? Maybe this will be better than what we have the current system, but uh, it's been tried before and it hasn't gone anywhere. So we'll see. And Clayfish and Nicholson this week also said they would support mm -hmm. this if they were elected into office. And then, you know, growing resignations in the state capitol, JR, it's like every other week we're talking mm -hmm. about this. Democrats are going to be losing the Senate mon Senate Minority Leader, excuse me, Janet Bewley. She announced this week that she will not seek re-election. Uh, in, her, in her statement, I should say, she said, after four years in the Assembly and almost eight years in the Senate, it's time for me to make way for a new generation of progressive and pragmatic 
charismatic leaders from a part of the state that has produced so many. And we've talked about this, right? We saw the trans- transformation mm-hmm. and assembly leadership as well, a lot of young up-and-coming lawmakers taking over these roles. And now we're going to see who might take over in the Senate. So uh, Janice Ringhan is the assistant mineral leader. She is 72, I believe. Um, she's on my watch list for possible retirements. If those two do not seek re-election, both this fall, you have the opportunity for generational change in the caucus. Go through the caucus right now. Uh, so Janet is retiring. John Erpenbach is retiring. Janice Ringhan might retire. Brad Paff is running for Congress. And Taylor's running for mayor. There are 12 members right now. That's five out of the mix. Right. You're down seven. So who of those seven could step forward and be leader? Well, Chris Larson did it one time before. Didn't go so well. Um, Melissa Agard is one to keep my eye on from Madison. Kelda Roy's from Madison. Those are the ones that probably hear the most of like possible leadership, but it could be a generational change from what we've had in the last two years. Also, don't forget, uh, Bewley took over because Jennifer Schilling resigned in April of 2020 from the leadership position, and then in May of 2020 left legislature entirely, right? Open over Brad Path, run for that, that seat right. that fall. There's been a lot of like upheaval among minority party. Gordon Hintz was uh, going to be leader for the entire session. He stepped aside in December. Now we have Greta Neubauer. There is a big change going on for Democrats. Uh, not at a great... It, the good thing for Senate Democrats is Julie's going to stay on to the end of the year. So you're not trying to change your election leadership during election. Election, yeah. So you're not just in charge of the building stuff when you're le- leader. You're also in charge of the out-of-the-building stuff. At least they have her in place through uh, at least November to get that election campaign up and going. Uh, but yeah, there's a real change coming. And then let's get to stock picks this week. Uh, first one rising is education money because there's this kind of yeah. dueling proposal on in, which we've talked about before, uh, giving more money to school districts that were in person during the pandemic versus those who are virtual. Big drama, right? Last yeah. May, about Republicans, the Finance Committee said we we're going to put more money toward in-person uh, schools that taught in-person education to reward them for that. At the time, the Fiscal Bureau said, just so you know, the feds may say this is not going to work. Well, what do you know? In December, they said it's not going to work. Republicans went up in arms, accused DPI of being cahoots with the feds to try and, like, punish their kids, all this kind of stuff. Quietly, though, the committee this week approved the revised DPI pro- proposal. So it's about $145 million bucks that was, like, down this pot of money. That was at, at uh, kind of part of the whole equation. The vast majority of all the federal funds for COVID went through Title I uh, formula, which is based, based on poverty. So that's why Milwaukee Public Schools benefited greatly, Madison, Beloit, Green Bay. The smaller pot of money, Republicans wanted to put a lot of it toward grants for in-person instruction. The Fed said you can't do that, so they ended up going from $77 million that was kind of at dispute, supposed to be for learning loss. They are still going to get $36.7 million, give or take a little bit, for in-person grants. That $77 million bucks that was going to be uh, for a couple of grant programs, and then for the rest of it to give everybody who's eligible a piece of the pie. Now, it's not going to impact everybody. If you are a Milwaukee Public Schools, for example, right, you got so much from the feds. Yeah, you got a huge you don't, chunk. You can't qualify for this money, or Madison or Green Bay. But it's still, you know, a little bit of money for the schools, and it quietly resolves that controversy we saw in uh, December and May of last year. And then uh, mixed this week, we have Brad Path, who is current uh, mm-hmm. state senator, is running uh, for the third congressional district. Uh, he raised more money than his Dem rivals, but he's still well behind oh, yeah. his GOP opponent. This is our first look at the Democratic candidates. So uh, Brad Path, uh, Deb McGrath, and Rebecca Cook. So Brad was about $336,000. Uh, Deb, uh, 200 and change. Rebecca Cook, 
said she raised 100,000 bucks the first three days of her campaign, then raised 150 for the full quarter. Well, that's not so great. Um, McGrath cuts an interesting figure because she is for, former CIA officer, former Army officer. That'd be a great contrast to Derek Van Orden, right? Having that uh, experience. Path, though, is kind of like the, the Ron Kine pick, right? Former aide to Ron Kine. Ron Kine gave him money right. during the quarter. The challenge for Brad is can you excite people? Because Ron Kine, no offense to Ron Kine, but his, his, his brand is bland, right? Like that's what he's known for. Oh, yeah. Kind of moderate guy. Doesn't excite the base. But he was the incumbent, so nobody's really going to mess him a whole lot. Does Brad want to be Ron Jr.? If he does, is that going to excite the base and get them fired up to turn out for him? Also, this is a good contrast with Van Orden. Now, Van Orden raised 800000 bucks in change, good money. He's raised $2.6 million in 2021 for their campaign. He also burned through three-fourths of what he raised in the fourth quarter. They call it the burn rate politics. It kind of raised some eyebrows. Like, you shouldn't spend that much money on what you're taking in. Plus, he had another 290000 bucks in debts, basically bills he hadn't paid. So he kind of broke even last quarter. The thing, though, is sometimes from campaigns, you have to invest money to make money. So if you're investing in your digital operation, because fundraising now is all about like those email pitches, right. win red, act blue. If, if you're investing in that infrastructure now to reap the rewards for the rest of the year, it can be an okay way to spend your money. But if you're not spending it wisely, you're burning through cash and you're going to be in trouble later on. So you got to keep an eye on that with Van Orden, how he, how he burns his money the rest of the year. And then following this week, it's almost the same uh, headline that we saw in 2020, is the state GOP is, uh, has a huge disadvantage on cash on hand compared to the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. So we saw state reports a couple weeks ago, but they also have federal reports. And I looked at those this week. They were filed uh, end of the January 31st. The state Democratic Party has about a 5 to 1 cash hand advantage over the Republicans. You take the three accounts into consideration. There's a federal account. The main state account, it's called a segregated account, which you can get corporate contributions in that account and you use it for administrative costs. You can't give candidates any money from that pot of, pot of funds. That's not great. And there are a couple of things going on. One, Ben Wickler, state party chair of Democrats, is a phenomenal fundraiser. It is easier to raise money as a party chair when you have the governor's office. It just is. Right. Um, Facts. <laughs> he's got the governor's office in Evers, plus he has national uh, network of uh, connections to hit up for money. They've been great at getting six-figure checks in the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. They're great at it. The Republicans have gone through now in the last two years three party chairs, right? So Brad Courtney stayed on after 2018 and the 19 to kind of help figure out what went wrong. He left and Andrew Hitt took over. Andrew left in uh, July because he wanted to more time with his family. Paul Farrow took over. We're not seeing the fundraising pick up. There are a couple things probably going on. One, they don't have the governor's office. Makes it harder. And oh, by the way, in 20. 18 January that year, it was reversed. Republicans had a three to one cash on hand advantage right. yeah. in January of 18. It just shows you the power of the governor's office for fundraising. For Republicans, the issue is okay, there's gonna be money flowing into Wisconsin, like we've talked about. NRSC, Republican Governors Association, the RNC, they're all gonna put money in. We have to rely on those national parties sometimes to fund your operation. The Democrats are worried about the pecking order. We know that Georgia's important, Arizona's important, Nevada, um, New Hampshire. Talking about governor's races, there. I know it seems like there's money everywhere. It's a finite resource. You have to decide where you're going to put it. So if Republicans go, okay, Georgia's more important this time or whatnot, they may get more money. Then there's Republican Party of Wisconsin to go, okay, can I put five people in this community versus that one? Whereas Democrats can go, I don't care what the DNC does. I can put it here, here, and here because I got the cash. Right. It also helps Democrats with the save the veto. I don't know if Evers is going to win come November. It'd be a gut punch for Democrats for Evers to win, but have two-thirds majorities in both houses of legislature and override his veto. 
they have to have funds to fund legislative candidates, and they got the money. So it, they're in a better spot than Republicans, but again, the money it's will be where there. where they put it, yes. The money will be there. It's where they put it, but they're just in a better financial shape right now. All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll see you next week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks for joining us. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.